Good afternoon. What a blessing God has given us to, to be able to come together to remember the price that he paid for our redemption, to be his people, his children, and that he has communicated himself to us through the scriptures. I invite you to open up your Bibles with me as we study today, that we might be nourished and equipped to, to be who God wants us to be. How strong of a Christian do you want to be? How would you answer that question? I don't know that anybody here would say, well, oh, oh, I would really like to be a mediocre Christian. Uh, you know, n nobody comes out of the waters of baptism aiming to be a lukewarm disciple or a half-hearted Christian. Not too strong, not too weak, just kind of comfortably drifting along in the middle. And yet, though none of us are aiming for that, too often, that is where we end up. Why is that? I think because despite what we may say about our spiritual goals, our spiritual goals are often crowded out and suppressed by what we perceive as more pressing concerns of day-to-day Life. All our time, our energy, our drive and passion are sapped away by work or school, running errands, recreation or entertainment, maybe the desires of our flesh, the empty promises of worldly fulfillment. And it can leave us um, sapped of, of any zeal and energy for the Lord. It can leave us seeing our spiritual lives as a chore, just another part of a long to-do list that often gets pushed back by the more tangible and measurable tasks of life. How do we change that? You know, we, we could do some practical things like making sure we start our days with the Lord. First thing in the morning, that we begin uh, with a time of devotion, of reading, of prayer. Maybe we do a Bible reading plan. Uh, maybe we start a prayer list. Maybe we get some accountability for our struggles. And I think many of those things can help. And if our hearts are where they need to be, likely we will be doing many of those things. Uh, but the more foundational issue is our hearts. It doesn't matter if our relationship to God is first thing on our to-do list or 30th thing on our to-do list. If it's still seen as just another thing on our checklist next to doing the dishes and laundry, uh, then we're fighting a losing battle. Think about it this way. If I only ever spent time with Aaron because I had the forethought to pencil her into my schedule and the discipline to keep that appointment, would I have a very strong relationship with Aaron? Maybe sometimes as life gets busy, maybe I need to make sure that I'm, I'm doing that, I'm setting aside time. But that doesn't solve the problem. If we want to be strong Christians, first and foremost, we need to rekindle our love and passion for the Lord. We need to stop just focusing on going through the motions and start cultivating the right kind of motivation in our hearts. I want us to talk about developing a genuine passion for God. How is it that we can develop a genuine passion for God? I think as we have already indicated, it starts by cultivating our hearts. 
We need to stop measuring our spirituality simply by how faithful we are in church attendance, how well we know our Bibles, how many spiritual activities we're involved in, how morally conservative we appear to the world around us. Now, failing in those areas may very well be evidence of a weak faith. But succeeding in those areas does not necessarily mean we are spiritually strong. Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 13, remember what God said to his people. He said, this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me. And their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. They were going through all the right motions, motions that would indicate a reverence for God, but it was all show. There was no genuine reverence in their hearts for the Lord. Their hearts were removed far from the Lord. And Jesus, when he quotes this passage of the Pharisees in Matthew 15, says that their worship was worthless. We can be going through all the right motions. We can be outwardly expressing devotion to the Lord, but if our hearts aren't in it, It's all for naught. Matthew 23, again, as Jesus talking to the Pharisees, he tells them in verse 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. You know, it's not that we shouldn't seek to clean the outside as well, right? It's not that our words and actions don't matter, but we need to get first things first. And that means working to transform our hearts before anything else, cultivating a genuine passion and devotion to the Lord. Because as clean as we get the outside, if we haven't first clean the inside. We cannot be pleasing in God's sight. You remember Matthew 22, one chapter earlier, when Jesus was talking about the first and greatest commandment. What was it? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. He says later on, on these depend the whole law and prophets. Brethren, this is square one. This is the foundation. If we don't get this right, then we can't truly have anything else right. It doesn't matter what else we think we have right. If we have not given our hearts fully to the Lord, then all of the rest of it is just slip service. Then it's just cleaning the outside of the cup. It doesn't matter how sound our doctrine is. It doesn't matter how much lip service we offer. It doesn't matter how well we know our Bibles. It doesn't matter how consistent we are in our attendance. If we haven't genuinely given our hearts to the Lord, then we're being hypocrites. And this isn't a cop-out. This is not to say that we can be morally permissive and and loose and reckless about doctrine and negligent and our commitment to the assembly and then say, well, my heart's in the right place. Um, I love God and that's all that matters. That's not what we're saying at all. You you see here, he says, uh, first clean the inside of the cup and dish so that the outside may become clean also. That sounds kind of like a purpose statement. But if, if the outside is ever going to genuinely be clean, It has to start by a transformation of the inner man, by transforming our hearts. And that is a means towards an end, a means towards a transformed and sanctified life. 
Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23 tells us, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Our hearts are the fountainhead. This is where it starts. It's not where it ends, but it is where it must start. It's where the battle is won or lost, is within the heart. You might think of it this way. If, if you want to send a rocket to the moon, you better make sure you spend some time at the drawing board, right? You better make sure that you have your math right. You better make sure you know your physics. And if you don't do that properly, it's never going to get there. But you do still have to kick on the rocket thrusters and get it to the moon, right? And so I want to, to be clear in what we're talking about here. Yes, we need to be committed to the assembly. Yes, we need to be committed to reading our Bibles, to praying. We need to be committed to doing outward things in service to other people. But first and foremost, if that's going to mean anything, it has to start with hearts that are fully devoted to the Lord. So how do we do that? I want us to look at some lessons from David's words within the psalm. We, we recognize David as a man after God's own heart. And in the psalms, he is pouring out his heart to the Lord. Where did David's passion come from? What fueled the fires of his praise to God? I want to start in Psalm 145. Um, we've been reading a good bit through the psalms in our Bible readings lately. Most of these psalms are going to be psalms of David, which we would have read mostly back in June. Um, but we're going to look at Psalm 145. I want us to look at verse 1 through 5 here. Starting in verse 1, David says, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Why? Verse 2, every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Why, David? Verse 3, great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. David says, I'm going to praise God and I'm going to praise him forever and ever. Why? Because of who he is. Because of the glorious splendor of his majesty, because great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, because he deserves to be praised. If we want to cultivate a genuine passion for God, we need to spend some time growing in reverence for God. In genuine reverence, not reverence just learned by rote, not outward reverence, inward appreciation and awe for the great God that we serve. Notice verse 5 in particular. It says, Oh, the glorious, on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works, I will meditate. Perhaps we need to spend some time meditating, thinking, stopping and dwelling upon the glorious splendor of God's majesty. Now, that might be a little bit difficult for us because none of us have ever come face to face with God's glory. None of us have ever beheld him. But I think one thing that we can do and should do is take some time going through the scriptures and meditating upon the glorious splendor of God's majesty revealed to us within. Think about some different people that did encounter God, that did encounter manifestations of his glory. Think about Job. 
In Job chapter 40 and verse 4, you remember Job has, through his suffering, been questioning God, questioning God's justice, why God is allowing all this to occur, why God's not intervening, and then God shows up. Uh, And you have in chapter 37, Elihu perhaps describing this whirlwind that is coming, the, the dark and thick cloud, the thundering and the lightning, and God shows up in the whirlwind. And now Job encounters God in all of his power. And God begins to question Job. He says, I'm going to question you and you answer me. Have you ever been in a really tense and difficult job interview? Magnify that by a million. (laughs) Here, God, the creator of the universe, is going to ask Job some questions. And Job's going to answer. And what's Job's response? Chapter 40 and verse 4, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand to my mouth. Job had a whole lot to say before that. But he wasn't going to speak another peep (laughs) until God was done teaching him the lessons that he needed to learn. That's the God that we serve. Think about Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah here sees this manifestation of the Lord sitting on his throne in all his glory, lofted and exalted. His robe is filling the temple. He's being praised by seraphim, shouting, holy, holy, holy. And then the very earth, the foundations of the temple begin to shake, and the temple is filled with smoke. Isaiah 6 and verse 5, we see Isaiah's response. He says, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Brother, that's the God that we serve today. Do we think about God in that way? You know, when we come to worship Him, when we open to read His words, Do we recognize the great splendor and glory and majesty of the God that it is that that we're serving, that we're listening to? Think about Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 1. God appears to Ezekiel in, in a storm here. And for 20 verses, for the majority of this chapter, Ezekiel describes the throne that God is sitting on. And the creatures that, that are carrying it. These living creatures with their four faces and, and the wings that they're flying with and covering their bodies. Uh, and the, the wheels with the eyes on them. And there's a, a flaming fire that's darting around between them. And he talks about the throne and, and the um, jewels and the splendor. And finally, after spending 20 verses, more than 20 verses describing what God is sitting on, he spends two verses very tentatively describing the one who is sitting on that throne. And when he gets to the end of that in verse 28, it says, Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Saying this isn't a full description of who God is, but this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. Have we ever fallen on our face in God's presence? Have we ever been so overwhelmed by reverence and awe of the God that we're serving that we became weak at the knees? If we recognized who God truly is, if we saw him in all of his glory, that's the proper response. 
Ezekiel wasn't the last one to do that in Revelation chapter 1. When John sees the resurrected Christ and he sees his eyes of flaming fire, his feet like burnished bronze, a sword coming out of his mouth, a voice like many waters, his face shining like the sun, it says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Brethren, that's the Lord that we serve. That's the Lord that we assembled here to, to worship today. And yet so many times we, we lose touch with the greatness and the splendor and the majesty of the God that it is that we're praying to, that we're singing songs of worship to, that, that we're listening to within his word. And so we need to spend some time appreciating who God is. But back there in Psalm 145, in verse 5, he says, On this glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works, I will meditate. Not only can we think about these demonstrations of God's greatness, we can think about his works within creation. You know, we can read about God's works within the scriptures, his miracles and wonders. We can think about the ten plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, uh, the walls of Jericho falling down, Jesus healing the lame and the blind, the resurrection. But, but even more in our own lives, we can take some time to appreciate the wonderful works of God. We can look at God's creation all around us. I think day by day, it's so easy for us. We're, we're often surrounded by creations of men, right? We, we drive in machines that are created by men. We live in houses that were built by men. We do our shopping and facilities that were made by men. And sometimes it's very easy for us to lose touch with the beauty and grandeur of God's creation and what he has done. Maybe we need to take some time to, to step away from all the hustle and bustle of this world and take some time to meditate, to think, to dwell upon the majesty of God's works. To go out and see the ocean and its vastness and its power. To go out in the middle of nowhere and see the night sky and the, the, the galaxies that God has created. That he has measured the heavens with a span. That he holds the mountains in, in scales, that he holds all the waters in the hollow of his hand, Isaiah 40. And so if we want to develop a genuine passion for God, we need to spend some time meditating upon the glorious splendor of his majesty, upon his wonderful works within his word, within his creation around us. But not only that, if you turn to Psalm 103 with me, again, a Psalm of David. Notice once again the passion of David's praise here and where it comes from. Psalm 103, starting in verse 1, it says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Why is it that David is, is urging his soul and all that is within him to praise the Lord? He says, don't overlook, don't forget all of his benefits, all that he has done, all of his blessings. Sometimes we sing the song, count your many blessings, name them one by one. The, the idea that David is saying here is don't let me forget a single blessing that you've given. 
Don't let me overlook any of the things that you have done for me. David's motivation to worship and bless God is a reminiscence of all the ways he had first blessed him. This is the concept of 1 John chapter 4 and verse 9. We love him because he first loved us. He goes on in verse 3 and 4, saying, Who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Who's the you that he's speaking to here? From the very beginning, David has been talking to himself. We talked about meditating. That's that's what he's doing. He's having a little talk with himself. He's talking to his soul and saying, remember what God has done for you, that God has forgiven you, that God has healed you, that God has redeemed you. Think of God's steadfast love and his mercy. All that God has done and his blessings towards you. Maybe we need to take some time to to have a talk with ourselves. Later on in the same passage, starting in verse 10, he says, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As we think about the many blessings that God has given, we also need to see God's blessings on the backdrop of our unworthiness. Sometimes we don't appreciate God's blessings the way that we need to because we begin to get accustomed to those blessings. Uh, And we start thinking that the air that we breathe and the the hearts that are pumping blood through our bodies and the food that we eat are somehow ours, that they're ours by right. To fully appreciate all that God has done for us, we need to recognize that none of those things belong to us. In fact, we are completely unworthy of any of the least of God's blessings. It's only God's grace that has given them. I think about Job chapter 1 and verse 21 where Job says, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Sometimes when we go through times of difficulty and tragedy, we think, well, God, how, how dare you take that away from me? You know, why, why are you doing this such injustice to me? As, as Job began to question. But Job at the very beginning recognized, no, Those weren't mine. Those didn't belong to me. Every single blessing came from the hand of the Lord. Every good thing. James chapter 1 and verse 17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Every good thing we experience comes from the Lord. Now, we may have corrupted some of those good things, And there may be some some pleasure and enjoyment found in wicked things. But you know, Satan doesn't create pleasure. Satan doesn't create enjoyment. He corrupts it. And any pleasure that Satan has to offer you is a pleasure that first was part of God's design, that we've corrupted. Every good thing, every perfect gift comes from above. How dare we seek to enjoy those good gifts 
corrupted by the world, corrupted by Satan's hands. But the greatest demonstration of God's blessing in our unworthiness is Jesus' death upon the cross. Consider Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 6. It says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were helpless, ungodly, sinners, enemies of God. And yet God gave us the greatest gift imaginable in the death of his son. I mean, to turn your Bibles with me to to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And I want us to just take a moment to think about the greatness of the gift of Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, starting in verse 5. Here here we read, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. When we think about Jesus' sacrifice, Jesus' sacrifice did not begin when the nails were first driven into his hand. No, his sacrifice began when he divested himself of his heavenly glory, took on flesh and blood. It says here he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He let go of his equality with God to take on human form. To become a little baby who couldn't take care of himself. I've probably used this illustration before, but, but think of it this way. If, if one of us were in a very serious car crash on our way home from services today, and we suddenly lost all use of our arms and our legs, and we could no longer take care of ourselves, we needed somebody daily to, to feed us to clothe us, to bathe us. Would we feel like we had lost a lot? How difficult would that be? Now think about Jesus, who went from being in heaven with God to being a little baby who couldn't feed himself, couldn't clothe himself, couldn't take care of himself. How much was Jesus willing to give up so that he could come to this earth, not to sightsee, (laughs) but he could come for the sole purpose of dying, humbling himself, not only in taking on flesh and blood, but living a life of servitude until he ultimately humbled himself in the shameful death upon the cross. Think about the Son of God, the creator of the universe, whose rightful place was on the throne in heaven, bleeding and writhing in pain, humiliated by those he came to save, mocked, spat upon, and beaten. That's how much God loved us. 
You know, there's a reason that we're instructed to remember Jesus' death each day, first day of the week. We need that reminder. We need to be reminded of the depth of God's grace and God's love for us. How dare we treat that as some checklist item? We need that to change our hearts, to affect the way that we think, to affect the way that we live in our service to the Lord each day. Do we want a deeper passion for God? Take some time to appreciate Jesus' passion for you. When we recognize the depth of our unworthiness, when we recognize the greatness of God's grace, how can we help but pour out our hearts in devotion and in service to the Lord? But I want us to consider a third area of developing this passion for the Lord, and that's growing in intimacy. The closer we grow in our relationship with God, the more our passion for him will grow. The more time we spend with him, the more we will desire to spend time with him. Think about it this way. Um, Aaron and I like to travel, uh, and primarily we like to travel home driving 12 hours to go see our family, right? We're thankful for those opportunities to spend time with our parents, spend time with our siblings, our nieces and nephews. Uh, but there have been times throughout my childhood that we would have larger family reunions where the majority of the people there, I didn't know. Maybe my parents knew them. I wasn't always very excited about that. Not near as excited as I am to go home and spend time with my siblings and my parents now. Why, why is that? Well, it's because I have a history with them. I, I have a relationship with them. There, there, there is an intimacy there that we're, we're thankful for and that we're thankful for the time that we're able to spend together. You know, if you told me drive 12 hours to see, you know, some random guy who lives down in St. Louis, I would say, no way. I don't know him, Right? Sometimes we fail to have the passion and the love for the Lord that we need to have because we haven't spent time developing a relationship with him. Because we're still distant from him. And so the idea of spending great time, sacrificing time, putting in diligence to spend time with him doesn't seem that appetizing to us because we haven't invested in that relationship. If you want to grow in your relationship with the Lord, start investing in your relationship with the Lord. Start spending time getting to know him within the word. Come to, to appreciate who he is and what he's done for you. David's relationship with God was often the foundation of his praise. Look in Psalm 18. Psalm 18, read verses 1 and 2 with me here. It says in verse 1, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. You see what word he keeps repeating there? To David, God wasn't a rock and a fortress, and a shield. He was my rock, and my fortress, my shield, my God. 
So much so that the, the first words out of his mouth, he wants to express his love for the Lord. This was personal. This was intimate. That's what fueled David's praise. Look later on in Psalm 27. Psalm 27 and verse 4. David says, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. One thing I have asked of the Lord. If, if we had one request to make of the Lord, what would it be? Riches, long life, wisdom. David says, one thing I've asked. And that's to be with him. To spend time in his house, in his temple. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Later on, in verse 8, says, you have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. David doesn't just desire something from God. He desires God himself, his presence, his relationship, his fellowship. We need to make sure that we don't just have a passion for God's stuff, but that we have a passion for God himself. Look in the psalm that Christopher read to us, Psalm 63 and verse 1. Psalm 63 and verse 1, David says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. What does David want? He wants the Lord. And we see that concept throughout the scriptures. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, without faith it is impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek heaven, who diligently seek him, it says. We need to be those who are seeking the Lord. Acts 3 and verse 19, and Peter's servant, he says, Repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Yes, we need to eagerly desire heaven. Yes, we need to eagerly desire salvation, righteousness, holiness. But we need to recognize that those are effects of a relationship with the Lord. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 8 Paul says, in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Who are those who are going to receive the crown of righteousness? Those who are looking for God, who want him. We see this in Revelation 21 in this description of heaven. Revelation 21, starting in verse 3. Notice what the focus is. It says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Verse 4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Verse 5, he says, I am making all things new. Verse 6, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the springs of life without payment. 
Verse 7, the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Is there any question what the focus is here? The focus of heaven is not, I'm going to have this nice mansion, and I'm going to have everything that I ever wanted, and I'm going to have gold and jewels. No, it's, I get to be with the Lord. I get to be in fellowship with him. And if that's not what has been fueling my service here on earth, then that's not ultimately what I'm going to find in heaven. I'm afraid sometimes that our passion for the Lord comes from a, a desire to feel like good people, you know, to, to uh, appear good to others around us. I, I've been very thankful for the camps that, that many of the, the young people have been to and that I've been, even been able to be a part of. But if, if my zeal for the Lord is only found when I'm with other people that are zealous for the Lord, then maybe it's not really about him. If I'm genuinely zealous for the Lord, then my excitement for him needs to be found even in just sitting by myself and reading his word. Even in spending individual time in prayer. And God has designed it. Don't get me wrong. God has designed it that we be built up and we be encouraged by one another. That's his design for his people. But what if in my relationship with Aaron the only time that I ever spent quality time with her was when we were in a big group with other people. You know, then I'll talk to her. And, and then, you know, I'll, I'll act like I love her. But then when we go home and we're by ourselves, well, you know, it, it was really more exciting when other people were around. Well, then it's not about her. If we want to develop a genuine passion for the Lord, then it, it needs to be about him. We need to cultivate an individual relationship with him. We need to make sure that we don't just have a passion for being righteous or appearing righteous, for, for appearing spiritual to others, for feeling good about our own morality or for the emotional fulfillment that we receive. We need to have a passion for God. And if that is where our passion is coming from, it's going to show. It's going to show in our passion for his people, it's going to show in our passion for his work. It's going to show in our passion for his word, for prayer. But we need a genuine passion for God himself. And when that is our focus, we will have plenty to be passionate about. So what about you today? Have you truly given your heart to the Lord? Can you say that he is your God? Can you praise him with the words that David praised him with? If not, then let's make a change. Let's repent. And if that is of a public nature, if you need to confess that before these brethren and ask for their prayers, that's why we're here, to help one another in our service to the Lord. If there's anything that we can do to help you give your heart truly and fully to the Lord. Won't you let us know? Um, 
If you need to commit your life to the Lord for the first time, by his grace, because of the great love and sacrifice of Jesus Christ, you can put your old man to death. You can bury him in the waters of baptism. By the power of God's grace and the resurrection, you can be raised to walk in newness of life. If you've made that commitment, but you haven't been living it, will you allow God to put your sins back to death today? Will you repent? Will you turn to him? If there's any way that we can help you in that, won't you please let us know at this time as we stand and sing together.